Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Richard Payne. He's an associate professor of history in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago and winner of the AAR Book Award in Historical Studies. He's here to speak to us about his book, A State of Mixture, Christians, Zoroastrians, and Iranian Political Culture in Late Antiquity, published with University of California Press. Congratulations, Richard, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Christian. It's a pleasure to speak with you, and also, you know, huge honor to uh, receive the award. You know, when one works in somewhat more recondite peripheral fields, it's hugely encouraging and inspiring to realize that one's read and read critically and appreciated, and um, the award really came as a major um, source of motivation, a real honor. So thank you. Yeah, it's well-deserving. Your book has won a lot of awards, so many congrats. A good place to start with your book is probably the title, A State of Mixture, because it drops us right into the context you examine in a way. What are you trying to tell us with your title, and what should we know about the social historical context in order to understand and get into your project? Yeah, well, the the, the title is really a double entendre um, in that um, I'm I'm using it as a term, uh, sort of a placeholder for the sort of conceptual apparatus that I bring to the work, which is to, th- to write a political history of Christianity in the Iranian world. So I'm interested in the state, although in general, throughout the book, I prefer, and, and, and um, beyond the book, I generally prefer the term empire to the term state, or to be more specific about what I mean by state, um, so as not to uh, impose you know, European conceptions of the nation state um, onto the ancient world. Um, and then mixture as a, a, a state or a political order that's um, uh, endurance um, and sustainability really depends on the integration of culturally disparate communities. Um, so on the one hand, the title is really um, kind of articulating analytical framework um, in, in you know, plain English, so to speak. But it's also a translation of a Zoroastrian Middle Persian word um, that is gumezition, um, that is a cosmological concept of the world in a state of mixture between good and evil. Um, and I argue in the book that Zoroastrian cosmological ideas are really central to um, understanding how uh, Iranian imperial elites um, acted, um, how they shaped their institutions, and how they dealt with non-Zoroastrians in the running of an empire. Um, so the title is really trying to get at these two um, distinct emphases um, that are, of course, interrelated. You know, the one is a focus on um, political power and an imperial order, and the other is on um, you know, really taking Zoroastrianism seriously um, uh, as an animating uh, force within Ar- Iranian political culture. Um, traditionally, studies of Iran have seen Zoroastrianism as kind of a um, either an ideological smokescreen, as a kind of empty propaganda used selectively to justify royal acts, or even more commonly, they've tended to view Zoroastrianism um, through the lens of sort of early modern, um, early modern European. Uh, politics, um, where the church and the priests form one faction among others negotiating for power at royal courts, um, and haven't really taken uh, Zoroastrianism as a complex of institutions that is um, ideology, but also um, real material structures that um, art- articulate and instantiate imperial power on the ground. Um, so you know, the, the title of the book is really to foreground the importance of Zoroastrianism um, in, in Iranian political culture, um, while also alluding to this sort of basic analytical problem of how to manage cultural diversity um, within a trans-territorial political order in the ancient world. 
Now, within this context, you're looking at Christians, and you're rethinking Christianity in the Persian late antiquity, in a sense. Can you tell us a little bit about how the narratives about Christians in the Sasanian Persian Empire were often told, and for what purposes? So the, the, the focus on um, narrative and even the focus on Christianity um, really emerged, um, uh, you know, historical work is always dependent on our sources. Um, and in the ancient world, of course, we have, um, you know, the, the extent, the scope, the nature of our sources varies widely from period to region. So we're always dependent on dealing with the material that we have at our disposal. So just to kind of, this is an important backstory, I think, uh, to the book, um, uh, that is, Christians in the Iranian world produced copious quantities of martyrology, stories about martyrs. Um, I say they produced copious quantities of martyrology, and that's certainly true. They may also, and are likely to have, produced copious quantities of um, other kinds of text that have not survived. So one of the problems that we have in studying the history of Christianity in, in, in the Middle East, um, and really in any ancient society, um, is that the texts that have been preserved have been preserved for particular reasons in the medieval and early modern periods. And martyrology and the recitation and liturgical commemoration of the martyrs was always central to um, Christian practice in the Middle East. So these are the texts that survived. Um, it's clear that producing um, texts about martyrs was um, a basic means of um, establishing the boundaries of a community within a particular region, uh, establishing the norms for that community, and particularly establishing the norms governing the relationship between Christians and their Zoroastrian neighbors, um, and Christians and the imperial um, apparatus um, within which they had to operate. Um, so stories about martyrs um, are involved in much more than simply commemorating um, Christians who are supposed to have died um, on behalf of their faith. So my approach um, to looking at this evidence was to really put the emphasis on that dialogue with the surrounding society and the surrounding political order, um, and really to try to give, um, rather than see martyrology or texts about martyrs as a, a passive source that historians can just raid for evidence, um, which is the traditional way in which um, historians worked with um, hagiographical or martyrological texts, um, was simply to go through them and look for facts. So particular years, names of kings, names of individual martyrs, and try to reconstruct a kind of um, you know, positivist history. Um, or even sometimes looking for the names of social institutions in order to document their presence or prevalence within a particular context. My approach was really to shift the emphasis onto the agency of the text itself. Um, that is, what are these narratives? Um, what are these narratives making possible within their particular environments? Um, what kinds of relationships are they enabling? Um, what kinds of relationships are they um, uh, foreclosing um, and preventing um, and, and, and restricting? Um, that was really my um, take on the material, was really to think about how these texts are um, making particular kinds of um, relationships and, and particular communities possible within um, the context in which they were written. Um, you know, martyr stories, I think, um, can't be separated from the larger institutional complexes of which they were a part. Um, that is the cults of particular martyrs, um, which are also spatial. Um, we 
as a uh, growing but still fairly limited archaeology of uh, the Church of the East, of East Syrian Christianity in the Iranian world. Um, but one thing that is clear is that there were a great many saints' cults um, that were actual institutions built. So we, we know uh, kind of we know very little about the actual structure of these shrines, what they would have looked like. But it's clear from the text that uh, these stories were connected with particular places. Um, and those particular places became sites of collective um, of ritual, liturgy, um, annual commemoration, um, and are also interventions in the landscape. So these texts are often about particular places that um, had previous Zoroastrian associations um, or were within the lines of sight of Zoroastrian institutions or, let's say, imperial institutions more broadly. So the other thing that I was interested in it was trying to give these texts a spatial dimension. So again, part of that, part of giving the text agency was also to locate it within a particular spatial or environmental um, context um, and then to see what, um, you know, w do these stories become more powerful or more potent um, within a space um, if they are actually um, uh, recited in a, in, a, in a landscape and can we locate and reconstruct that landscape. Um, so trying to, to write social history from um, hagiographical martyrological texts um, involved that. Um, I think the two most productive lines um, of research for me were thinking about the role of the text in shaping communities and also the role of the text in shaping um, you know, uh, lines of sight, the experience of space, uh, the experience of landscape, um, which is also, of course, connected with the experience of time in that these are annual commemorations happening at particular places. Much of what you do in the book, especially the middle chapters, is you talk about how in order to establish their social and political status, these East Syrian Christians drew from or relied on Zoroastrian ideas and institutions and practices. And you derive this both from these hagiographical works, but also uh, legal or jurisprudential works. Can you talk about or describe some of the ways Christians navigated their social and political status within the Iranian context? I think the appropriation of Zoroastrian institutions, um, again, through texts, that is, that these texts are essential to that project of appropriating Zoroastrian institutions, is really an important part of the book. And the, um, again, to tell kind of a little bit of a backstory that's a prelude, um, one of the things that really stood out to me in reading the sources was the extent to which uh, Christian local or regional Christian aristocracies were fully participating in the in the Iranian imperial order, um, even though it's defined in Zoroastrian religious terms, um, and many of its institutions, you know, bear uh, the imprint of Zoroastrian ideology, um, you know, really throughout. Um, they're, they're sort of unambiguously, unambiguously Zoroastrian institutions in which Christians are actively participating. So their religious identity did not seem to be a hindrance to participation in Zoroastrian empire. Um, so we see Christians, for instance, participating in military campaigns. Um, we see Christians operating at court within the fiscal administration, etc. So my, what I then um, was looking for were how uh, Christian religious specialists dealt with this problem and the potential um, for conflict and tension and um, the incommensurabilities. So where do the, what were the practices that were, what were the limits of Christian participation in Zoroastrian institutions? How, um, how far could you go before your Christian identity became unsustainable? Um, were there practices that were simply irreconcilable with Christian belief and practice? And texts emerged, these hagiographical texts and also juridical texts, um, emerged as vehicles through which certain 
imperial practices were made legitimate and certain practices were made illegitimate in what was really an ongoing uh, conversation, uh, the terms of which were always shifting. And we can't always trace the precise development, but we can see particular interventions. So each text is an intervention in an ongoing debate about um, what were the limits of Christian participation in Zoroastrian institutions. Um, in asking about the juridical texts, I found those very helpful um, for exploring this world, because there you can see Christian bishops have a they have a they're, they're they're in a bit of a bind. On the one hand, to uh, to um, establish their juridical authority, they need to be um, uh, pragmatic to adopt um, you know Claudia Rapp's concept of the kind of pragmatic authority of the bishop. Does the bishop actually to be uh, to be effective as a, um, a juridical mediator needs to actually be able to solve um, the disputes that Christians are bringing to the Episcopal court. In the Roman world, that involved the large-scale appropriation of Roman law. And as the work of um, Carolyn Humphreys has shown, um, many bishops were themselves expert in Roman jurisprudence um, before becoming bishops, and that was an asset for becoming a bishop. In the Iranian world, um, the juridical disputes that that bishops would have found themselves mediating would have involved it would have involved land contracts, marriage contracts, um, property transfers, all of which were administered um, by Zoroastrian jurists. That is, there there is no uh, jurisprudence in the Iranian world that is not Zoroastrian in its inspiration, in its terms, um, in its in, in every aspect of its institutional um, development. Um, it, this does not mean to say that every juridical principle in uh, the Zoroastrian law books that survive derived from Zoroastrian cosmology. It's of course a much more complicated story, but the uh, chief. Um, juridical practitioners and juridical authorities in the Iranian world were, in fact, Zoroastrian priest scholars, the Mobed. Um, the Mobedan Mobed, the chief Mobed of the empire, is the, uh, his, his judgment is infallible. He stands at the apex of a hierarchically organized juridical system. So for bishops to carve out a position for themselves in that world, they need to appropriate aspects of Zoroastrian law, or at least be able to um, understand and deal with conflicts um, uh, whose terms originate in Zoroastrian law. On the other hand, as bishops um, who are trying to assert the distinctiveness of Christian communities, they need also to, uh, again, draw limits. Uh, what, are the, what are the limits to Christian participation? What are the Zoroastrian institutions that Christians cannot adopt? Um, and then, as a function of that, they need also to deal with some of the, um, the, 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 the problems that arise from banning certain practices that uh, are essential to uh, the maintenance of property and power, right? property being um, in a patrimonial system um, in, in the Iranian aristocratic order, the patrimonial estate transmitted along the patrilineage um, across generations, ideally unto eternity, that is, um, each male line should uh, theoretically continue um, um, as long as um, conceivably possible. Um, it, it, there are a variety of practices that are that are Zoroastrian in inspiration, um, on which elites depended in order to transfer their power across generations and to maintain their positions within the imperial system. How could bishops say, you can't adapt this institution, while also on the one hand, trying to maintain the power of a Christian aristocracy within this imperial order? So they're dealing with a whole set of um, possible contradictions and possible paradoxes. And, and I found the juridical sources to be extremely rich in this respect, um, in, in revealing those tensions and those challenges. So texts that had, these texts had really been read as examples of a um, fully institutionalized, fully developed um, Christian 
legal system. Um, and that's how most scholars had described East Syrian juridical texts in the past. And they did so in part because the, the juridical development of the Church of the East is remarkably precocious. So this is the first, uh, this is the first Christian community that has a normative form of marriage, for instance, um, that it comes up with what seem to be its own laws governing inheritance and property transfer um, and, 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 and marriage. Um, so it seems to be this remarkably precocious development of a peculiarly Christian juridical system. But when one looks at the terms more precisely, one finds that much of what seems, what, what, what bishops are asserting as distinctively Christian is often an institution that's been borrowed from the Zoroastrian juridical order. And this gets to the, to, to the role of polemic, um, where polemic um, attacking the institutions of another religion is often taken straightforwardly as evidence of conflict. But more often, I think, uh, polemics are introduced in particular moments um, to uh, cover um, or to make possible um, cover sounds a little too instrumental to me, so that's a little bit of a, uh, I misspoke there in using such instrumental language, but to make possible um, an, an appropriation. So when, when bishops assert a, uh, a, a Christian practice, they're often actually bringing in a Zoroastrian practice and making it their own. Great case of this is leveret marriage, um, what, what Christians come to call leveret marriage. Um, in the work of Maraba um, and in, in, in other uh, early 7th century uh, East Syrian juridical um, uh, compendia, where there is a lot of talk about Christian law and Christian marriage and um, a lot of, uh, of talk about distinguishing Christian law from Zoroastrian law. And yet what's actually happening in these texts is that Christians are creating a modified version of a fundamental Zoroastrian juridical institution, namely Sturi, a substitute successorship, um, which in the Zoroastrian tradition is um, a, a marriage that's established on behalf of a man who dies without male heirs, and in which ideally members of his patrilineage um, enter into a marriage and create a child that is considered the um, actual male heir of the already deceased man. Um, the complexities of that institution are, um, are, are you know, um, go beyond the, the terms of this conversation, I think. Um, it would take me a while to explain all the nuances there. Um, and it's a very, it's, a, it's an institution that creates all kinds of political possibilities for the Iranian aristocracy. What the Christian bishops do is not to say, you can practice this, uh, uh, you can practice story or practice substitute successorship. What they say is, you cannot practice that because it's a thoroughly Zoroastrian um, uh, institution. What, but at the same time, they introduce a uh, modified form of substitute successorship that doesn't offer quite the same degree of flexibility for the elite, but essentially fulfills the same function. Um, and that is something that they call leveret marriage, even though, strictly speaking, it's not leveret marriage because it's any um, patrilineal um, any patrilineal representative um, can um, conduct a marriage, uh, can, can, can marry the wife of a deceased male um, and produce a child that is then considered the male heir um, of the man who's already deceased. So the end result looks a lot like substitute successorship, um, even though it's somewhat less flexible and somewhat less complex. And that's an appropriation or a, an attempt to, um, to, to create an institution that looks like the Zoroastrian one at the same time as the bishops are articulating um, anti-Zoroastrian polemic um, that is focused expressly on Zoroastrian law, but 
they're also, in some sense, appropriating um, at least parts of Zoroastrian law at that very moment. Um, and I think it's a powerful illustration of how polemics work in these particular social contexts, um, where it's often when bishops are at their most strenuously anti-Zoroastrian, or not just bishops, I should say, monks, religious specialists more broadly, it's when they're at their most strenuously anti-Zoroastrian that they are, in fact, um, most um, uh, intimately engaging with and often appropriating um, parts of the Zoroastrian um, institutional complex. So in the final chapter, you focus on one leader, Husserl II, who seems to be an interesting example of this state of mixture that you're, you're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about him and how he drew upon and navigated both Zoroastrian and Christian resources to facilitate his leadership? Yes. So, um, you know, Husserl II really is a, a fascinating figure, um, best known as the conqueror of the Roman Middle East. Um, and yet people rarely took seriously uh, Husserl II's engagement with Christian institutions. Um, that is, uh, it's long been known that Husserl II was a patron of St. Sergius and the Shrine of Rusafa. Um, it's long been known that um, in the Roman world, he was often perceived as a sort of secret Christian, a, a closet Christian, if you like in part because of his very public patronage for Christian institutions and um, involvement even of Christian bishops and, and saint, a saintly bishop in particular um, in his entourage. Um, and the uh, fairly positive treatment that a great many Christian um, uh, religious specialists experienced under the rule of the Iranians um, in the Roman Middle East. So um, he was not as as Byzantine propaganda portrayed him as this destroyer of Christian institutions and this bringer of idolatry back to the Roman Empire. Rather, um, he uh, systematically um, supported um, Christian bishops and monasteries, particularly those who were non-Chalcedonian, um, that is Miaphysite or West Syrian, um, and also, of course, East Syrian, um, which leads to him getting a more positive uh, reputation in, in, in those traditions um, than in the uh, Chalcedonian um, Byzantine one. And at the same time, he in no way abrogates the Zoroastrian institutions on which the empire is predicated. And scholars often, when they did look at Husserl's behavior um, in relation to Christian churches, they often regarded him as a kind of oscillating uh, sort of oscillating in his religious convictions. So one year he's pro-Christian, one year he's pro-Zoroastrian. Um, I thought those accounts... Uh, demonstrate those accounts don't fit with the evidence that actually we see something much more systematic um, in his actions um, and his conduct toward Christians and Zoroastrians throughout his reign, in which Zoroastrianism is fundamentally never questioned. But at the same time, um, Husra II um, can patronize Christian institutions, adopt Christian symbols to represent his rule, particularly in the conquered provinces of the Roman Empire that are um, overwhelmingly Christian, and even to position himself as a successor to the Christian Roman emperor. Um, and he does so through these very public acts, um, namely convening a council to resolve the problem of orthodoxy, much as Constantine had done, um, proposing to expel the Jews from Jerusalem, um, as Heraclius will later do. Um, there are these ways in which he's clearly positioning himself as a Christian Roman emperor in the Roman Middle East, while at the same time maintaining Zoroastrian institutions and Zoroastrian um, and, and the, the predominant position of the Zoroastrian religious elite within the imperial apparatus. Uh, it is not a, uh, it's not a story without tension, um, and I explore in the book um, 
some of the echoes of a debate about the extent to which a Zoroastrian king of kings can adopt Christian symbols in the Book of Kings tradition that survive um, in, in Firdausi Shahnameh and in um, Arabic historiographical works um, like Dinawari and Tabari, um, where we see uh, some concern articulated by uh, the Zoroastrians at court about, let's say, the king of kings wearing a, um, wearing a cloak a silk brocade cloak with Christian crosses. Um, to what extent is this acceptable at a Zoroastrian court? Um, the text actually gives us uh, answers in the affirmative and answers in the negative. Um, there is clearly a debate, a conversation happening. Um, what I think uh, really is not in doubt is that Husserl II saw himself as um, uh, the uh, most successful creator and architect and ruler of a Zoroastrian empire, and he saw uh, the support of uh, Christian institutions as fundamental to his rule. Um, that is, Zoroastrian empire depended on the support of Christians. That is, the active participation of Christian aristocrats, bishops, and re other religious specialists um, in, uh, in not only maintaining um, you know, broad-based ideological support, but also in practical government um, much as the Roman Empire did. So it's that combination of Zoroastrian and Christian institutions that um, enabled Husserl um, to create at least momentarily, or to recreate at least momentarily, um, the Persian Empire um, that uh, you know, had not existed to such an extent um, in almost a millennium. Um, of course, it only lasts for a couple of decades, but as an experiment, it really, I think, demonstrates um, the central role of Christian institutions in, um, in, in a Zoroastrian empire. Um, and that's what I think is so powerful about those episodes, is they put in high relief um, that is seeing a Zoroastrian empire try to rule the Christian Roman Middle East, um, and to do so with a much higher degree of success than previous authors have been willing to admit. Um, that is, I think, the collapse of the imperial edifice um, is something that has much more to do with external factors um, than with the internal support of, uh, its, of, of the dominated ruled population. Um, it illustrates um, the, 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 the success of Zoroastrian Empire really depends on its co-optation of Christian institutions, and that in turn depends on um, the ability of Christian religious specialists um, to mediate and to resolve the contradictions between the Christian faith and service of a Zoroastrian Empire. Well, Richard, it's a fascinating and very detailed work. Congratulations on your award, awards, I should say. Thanks for making the time to talk about it. Great. Thank you so much, Christian. <laughs>